Good morning. Thank you, Dan. Hi there. I am Alan. I'm one of the uh, the elders here at Greater Alton, and I am your substitute preacher for today. Yeah, I'll just humbly stand it. It's it's honestly it's a privilege. It's it's uh it's a great concern to try to to come up in front and and to speak up for God and to tell you what I've learned from His Word. But it's also as terrifying as it is. It's also a great privilege, and uh, and you're probably the easiest crowd in the world to talk to. Before we get into the lesson, which is, by the way, the last lesson that we're going to be doing in this series on why. Why is it the last one? Because I'm just the substitute preacher. <laughs> Actually, Tim and I were talking this morning, and he's been giving some thought to another lesson series, and I think you're really going to learn a lot from it. It really does sound good. And eventually, we don't want to get caught in the two-year-old trap of asking why, why, why. But we are in this series, and what we want to do is we want to go back to the basics. And you know, sometimes you think you know something, only to find out you really didn't know it as well as you did. And that happens in Christianity a lot. Sometimes we do things so often that it becomes more ritualistic. And all of a sudden, this thing, Christianity, that was supposed to be a relationship with God, turns out to look a whole lot more like just religion. So it's really good to go back and look at what the Bible has got to say from time to time, even over the very basic stuff. What we're going to look at today is confession. Confess. Why confess? Before we do that, I want to point out, if you're looking for your notes in your, in your uh, handout, in the, in the bulletin, they're not there. There's a reason. Uh, our secretary, who normally prints those and puts them in there for you, had the gall to get married yesterday. And so she thought that that was a worthy excuse for taking a little time off, so she wasn't able to actually print those off for us, and I get the feeling they're not going to be in there next week either, because I think she's taking her honeymoon, so she's probably going to be gone for a week or better, but that doesn't mean that you can't get your notes. Patrick, would you show them our website? Okay, if you have a mobile device that is equipped for the internet, then you can download those notes if you'd like to. Go to our homepage, which looks like that. You can get there by typing in Greater Alton Church, one word, .com or .org. It doesn't matter. They'll both take you to the same place. And if you navigate over, you'll see these uh, different tabs. See the one there that he's pointing to that says Sermon Archive? If you go down to 2014 and hit that icon, it'll pull up a page that looks like this. And as you scroll down, you can see this box here. And there's our lesson today. Why confess? If you hit that little button there, it'll bring up those notes. And you can either save those or you can follow along and that'll be kind of handy. About 3 o'clock this afternoon, there'll be another icon up there that looks like a microphone. And that'll be an MP3 of this lesson. Now, if you recall, last week I was asking for some help on figuring out how to do podcasts. And guess what? We've got them. This week we have them ready. If, you have, uh, if you're used to using iTunes, if you have an iTunes account... You can go to podcast under iTunes and type in a search for Greater Alton Church, three words, and it'll pull up a couple of different podcasts that you can listen to. We have every sermon all the way back to 2012 on there. And the neat thing about being a subscriber on a podcast is it just automatically updates for you so that you always have the latest lesson there. There's another icon there for our small group lessons, and so you can get the audio to those. And I know podcasts are... I use them all the time, and I think they're a great way to learn things. So I hope that you can make some use of that. Okay, today's lesson, why confess? Whenever I bring up the word confess, how many of you go, yippee? Any positive thoughts about confession? 
Yeah, and in Christian circles, there are a lot of different takes on what confession means. A lot of different debates. And after, I guess over the last 10, maybe 15 years, there's even been a growing movement of people that deny the need for Christians to ever confess. The thought is this, that if God has forgiven us of our sins, then there's really nothing for us to confess. And that if we confess, that's an insult to God, saying we don't really believe that he's forgiven us of our sins. I'm not persuaded to believe that that's the strongest argument out there. And of those that, that don't look at it that way, often the debate turns to, well, what should I confess? When should I confess it? And who should I confess it to? Well, I'm here to tell you that about ten years ago, if you would have asked me to answer, why confess? I'd have probably given you a whole lot different information than what I'm going to try to give you today. My mind has changed radically on this, on this subject. And I'll tell you where the change for me started. It was in going back and looking what that word actually means. If I said, what's confess? What does that mean? What would you tell me? What's the, the best definition you can give me of, of confess? Admit. Yes. The English... Com- and if you look it up... And Patrick, that's the next slide, by the way. If you, don't go ahead of me, though. Just that one. Yep, there you go. In English, the definition for confess is to admit. Has anybody ever looked at you and said, I know what you did... Why don't you just confess it? What they're asking you to do is to admit it, right? I had always approached my Bible thinking that that's what this word meant. Would it surprise you to find out that that's not what the New Testament writers had in mind whenever they used the word that we translate in English as confess? Surprise me. In Greek, Koine Greek, the definition of confess, the word is homologeo. And what it means is to speak the same thing, to have the same mind about something. In other words, to agree. So now think about that for a second. This is a game changer. Instead of having to just admit that I did something, God calls me to agree with him about what I've done. You see, confession is about agreeing with God. It's about having the same mind as God does about my sin. It's about saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin. Now, I used to be a police officer. I've written way too many speeding tickets in my time. Have you ever been pulled over for a speeding ticket? Did the officer do something like this? Did they walk up and say, excuse me, sir, madam, did you know you were speeding? You know why they do that? They're not just trying to strike up a conversation. I know. I was looking for a confession. Because if you say, yeah, I know it, you've just admitted that you you were speeding. Confirmed my suspicion, right? What happens if the guy looks at me and says, yes, I was speeding, but I didn't plan on doing it that long? (laughs) Has he confessed? To our English definition, yes, he has. But according to what the Bible writers were telling us, no, he has not. Why not? Because he hasn't agreed that he shouldn't be. He hasn't agreed that that law is right. He's just admitted it. Okay, so whenever I started understanding this difference, I had to go back and look at some of the verses that tell me why I should confess, and I had to rethink what I was actually being told in those. So one of the new answers that I would give you about why I should confess, the first one is, I need to confess so I can be purified from unrighteousness. Purified from unrighteousness. 
Where do I get that idea? Well, from 1 John. If you look at chapter 1, verse 9, John says there, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will, for, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, whenever I was a younger guy, and I didn't really understand this definition difference, what, what the Bible writer had, what John had in mind where he said confess, where I thought it just meant that I had to admit my sin, I really thought that this verse was telling me this is what i got to do so that I don't get charged guilty with the sins that I've committed since I've become a Christian. Anybody else here been taught that? Well, this is how I worked it out in my little peanut brain when I was a kid. Okay, I've got to, before I go to bed at night, and this is the most opportune time, I've got to call to mind everything that I did that was a sin today. I need to admit it to God. I need to ask Him to forgive me. Otherwise, I could go to hell if I die in my sleep. Well, you can't go to heaven if you're not forgiven, right? And He says, if we confess, then we'll be forgiven. Wow, what a burden. Now, this wasn't so bad when I was in junior high, but by the time I got into high school, I was having a hard time remembering everything I had done that day. So now it's like, I've got to carry a notebook and start scribbling down all the different stuff. And then it dawned on me, I don't even know when I have sinned. I bet I've done things that God thinks is sin that I don't even know that they're sin. So I started putting a writer clause in my prayers. So after, I was, I, it, bedtime was getting pushed back later and later. <laughs> I was taking more and more time in my prayer life because I was having to list all these sins. And when I got to the end of everything that I knew, that I'd say, God, if I did something that I didn't know was a sin, I sure hope you'll forgive me of that too. So that when I lay me down to sleep, I can pray, You're my soul you'll keep. <laughs> you know? Is that really what John's trying to tell us to do? Doesn't that sound like a burden and a bondage? It is. It's a form of what we call legalism. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Okay, so let's press for a new definition. If we agree with God about our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins. Okay, I hate to do a Greek lesson here because I'm not a Greek student, but sometimes we've got to look at what the author intended us to understand and we have to go back to the original language and ask for definitions. This word forgive, I always assumed there was just one word for forgive and it meant one thing. The same thing it would mean wherever you read it in Acts 2.38 where Peter said... Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It was pretty clear to me there that what he was saying is that to be forgiven of sin means to be rescued from those sins. That I don't have to pay for them anymore. Jesus paid for them. The Greek word there is ephesus, and that's what it means. It means to be delivered. Would it surprise you to find out that in Greek, there are four words that we interpret with one English word, forgive? There are four different words that all get translated into that one word, forgive. See, Greek... Koine Greek, the language that the New Testament was written in, is a real specific language. Many of you have heard the discussion before about the word love. In English, we have one word, love. I say, I love my wife. I love pizza. I love the Chicago Cubs. The same word. They all have different meanings, right? Well, in Greek, they had five different words for that one word. And I think the one applying to the Cubs, they would say stupid. But... One day, one day it will pay off. I am a man of faith. One day my faith will be rewarded, I hope. In English, though, there are, there's only one word for love. And in the same way, there are four words that always get translated forgive, but they have different flavors, different 
uh, implications behind them. In Acts 2, 38, forgiveness of sins, the word ephesus means to be delivered, to be rescued from. It's kind of a legal type of a flavor that you get there. I no longer have to pay for my sin. That is not the word that John uses here. John uses a word here called aphime. Aphime, that's it, aphime. I'm not a Greek guy, so I have to struggle with the pronunciation. Aphime, you know what that means? To send away. Other verses translate this word as divorce. Now think about this for a second. If we use those definitions, this verse is now saying, if we agree with God about our sin, if we're on the same page with Him, we see it the way He does, we say the same thing about it that He does, He will send our sins away from us, divorce us from our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of a sudden, instead of a verse that tells me that my salvation is conditional upon my ability to recall, confess, admit my sin, and ask for forgiveness, we're looking at a verse now that tells me how I can actually overcome sin. Not just be legally free from the debt of it, but how to learn not to sin. Okay, everybody in this room is the same, I promise you. Everybody in this room has got some sin, and I want you to close your eyes for a second and bring it to mind. That sin that embarrasses you and frustrates you that you know is wrong, and you give in to it, and you don't know why you give in to it, you don't give in to it every day, but you've struggled with it for years, and part of you believes you'll always struggle, that you'll never be able to fully be free from it. Got that one in mind? First thing I want you to realize is that everybody has got that sin. It may be a different sin, but everybody's got one. Confession is the way to stop that sin. Confession will bring victory over that sin. Now, I've not got anything against recovery programs. I've seen some amazing things that are done in recovery programs, but one of the faults in them, and even in some of the Christian ones, is that sometimes we settle for coping with a sin rather than learning how to actually overcome it. And I think part of it is because we've been confused about what confession really is and why we should do it. And we've settled for admitting our guilt without changing what we think about our sin. You'll also notice that what he says here is that it purifies us from all unrighteousness. You ever, unrighteousness, you ever purified anything? Did you flip a switch and it was pure? I get the impression from this verse that it's a process. It's a process. There are some sins that are relatively easy to quit. Hatchet murder would be an easy one for me to quit. I've never done it. I've never wanted to do that one. But there are other sins that are very hard. And some of you, when you became Christians, some sins stopped immediately. You know why they stopped? Because whether you knew it or not, you confessed it. Because you saw it the way God saw it, and it no longer attracted you. Okay, so how does this thing work? I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here a little bit. How does confession work? I believe it's this way. When I see my sin the way God sees it, through his eyes, I think about it and feel about it the same way that God does, which is the definition of confession. It no longer tempts me. I no longer want to do it. Okay, close your eyes a minute. Go back to that sin I asked you to bring to mind. Think about why you're attracted to it. Most of us, 
love it and hate it at the same time. Why does it call to you? Why does it tempt you? What is it about it that thrills you and entices you? You got something close to an idea of how you'd answer that? Now, hold that thought and ask yourself, how does God see that sin? What would he say about it? Pornography is one that I have had to struggle with. Like a lot of guys, I don't want to see a show of hands. It's, it's an epidemic in our country. Back in 1991, I'd, I'd never really even had too many guilt problems with looking at pornography when I was a younger guy. Even after I became a Christian, I sort of rationalized it and thought, well, who am I hurting? Who even knows? Right? So, 1991, I moved here, and I actually started off working for Tim Gill. I was doing windshield repair, and I had to go to different car lots. Ever been into the bathroom of a, uh, of a garage? Every guy knows what's in those bathrooms, right? Usually, there's some kind of a pornographic magazine, and on this particular day, there was one. So, I picked it up, looked at it, thought that was pretty cool, didn't think anything more of it. I'm driving home, my conscience starts bothering me. I'm thinking, now, why did I look at that, and what's, what's wrong with it? And so I remember having a very long prayer, and I asked God very humbly, one of the smartest prayers I ever prayed. I said, God, and I remember it clearly. I said, God, I looked at this, and I, I don't really feel bothered with it. I, I don't even know how this is a problem. You know, I, I don't see how this hurts anybody. Who's going to know it if I don't tell anybody about it? Where's the problem? But God, I know that you find this disgusting. I just don't know why you see it as ugly and why you see it as sinful. And God, I want to see it your way. So would you help me to see it the way you see it? I would love to tell you that a bolt of lightning hit me and I never wanted to see a naked woman again. It didn't work that way. It still hasn't worked that way. Jeff Foxworthy once said, once said that women always want to know what's on a man's mind. Well, it's not that difficult. We want a beer and we want to see something naked. <laughs> That's kind of the way guys are in our fallen state. But I've got to tell you, that is changing for me radically. Because now what goes through my mind whenever I'm starting to think about, gee, I'd like to see some naked girl, is who's looking out for that girl? Who's taking care of What must her life be like? What did it take to talk her into doing that? And what was it like to be her after this? What's she going to feel like when she's not pretty anymore? What did this do to her life? You know what that does for all the erotic things that come into a man's mind? Talking about getting shot out of your saddle. And all of a sudden, I don't really want to see it anymore. See, I'm learning to confess. I'm not there yet. There's still my moments whenever I don't see it like God does, and I still have to go back and work at it in prayer. But what he's doing is he's changing what I want. And that's the key to confession. That's the key to overcoming sin. There's another way of trying to overcome sin, and that's to say, well, there's a rule that says I can't do it. And this rule keeps me from doing it. And we've got all kinds of ways of trying to put up rules to keep ourselves from giving in, we get into trying to get accountability partners. And we look at some other person and we say, would you hold me accountable? And what we're saying is, would you be my warden? 
Would you hold the keys to the prison that I want to live in so that I don't give in and sin like this anymore? That is an awful thing to do to another person. By the way, how well does it work? If you've done this, how well does it work when that person isn't around? It doesn't work. The best way that I can explain the difference between legalism and what we're talking about with confession, by the way, what we're talking about is grace. We're talking about grace. Talk about your definitional problems. How many of you have always defined grace as, I don't know, slack? Forgiveness. How many of you maybe say, I'll give this person some grace? It's a pretty common mistake to be made. Forgiveness is a part of, of grace, but grace is so much bigger. The same guy that wrote that first verse that we looked at, 1 John 1, nine. he's an apostle. He also wrote one of the Gospels. In the first chapter of that Gospel, he tells us who Jesus is. You familiar with it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. In that same chapter, he says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Grace is something that was inside Jesus. He came full of this grace. A couple verses after that, he says, of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace upon grace. We keep receiving more grace. I still struggle to understand the fullness and the richness of what grace is, but I can tell you it's something to do with what was inside Jesus, something of his personality, something of his perspective, something about the way that he looks at everything. Peter told us to grow in the knowledge, the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge grow together. And see, I figure it this way. When I come to know Jesus... When I actually understand and I start to see him the way he sees himself, when I start to see things the way that he sees it, I take on his personality. I receive more grace. And the inside part of me changes. I begin to look at the world and I look at myself and I look at you and I look at my sin the way that Jesus would look at it. You understand that? So now I start to change and what I want starts to change. The other option is to try to tie yourself off and set up a bunch of rules. And we do this in churches all the time. I think maybe the biggest sin, the first sin as Christians we run to is legalism. We set up all kinds of rules and tie ourselves off and we never address the real problem because all we do is we admit our sins and we don't really change what we want. And so we tie ourselves off denying what we want and we're only as good as our structure of restraint. Sometimes we try to rely on our self-willpower. Other times we try to rely on our friends and our circumstances. If you've ever suffered with legalism, let's just say, let's, let's take uh, alcohol, drinking alcohol. Christians generally do not debate that being drunk is wrong. They frequently debate whether or not it's wrong to have a sip. If you believe, I really would like to drink. I would like to, but God doesn't want me to. So I'm not going to do it. And you have accountability partners that keep you from it. How do you feel about the Christian sitting next to you who says, I don't have a problem with having a sip of alcohol? You get kind of bent. You get bugged. You get bitter. You can become a bully. And the reason being is because they're doing what you want to do, but you won't allow yourself to do. 
because you think it's wrong. So the only thing that's restraining you is the rule. That, friends, is legalism. You want to find out about the, the effects of legalism? Look at Romans chapter 7. Paul talks all about how the rules weren't enough to keep him from screwing up. He said the more he found out was wrong, the more he wanted to do what was wrong. And the problem was it didn't change what he wanted. But grace does. Look at Titus. Titus 2. Verses 11 through 12. says, For the grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. If grace is not teaching you to say no to sin, you may not have it. Because that's what grace does. Grace teaches us to say no. And it is a process. And I think it is tied so closely to this idea of confession. To my mind, I believe that we live and die by how well we confess. In fact, what's the definition of repentance? I was told always it's about, about facing, right? I turn and I go the other direction. It's not a bad definition, but the literal definition is to change the way you think and the way you act. You ever tried to stop a habit and you try to use willpower? How many of you struggled with smoking? Smoking, I, I want to do it, but I know I shouldn't. It says I shouldn't do it, but it's so enjoyable. I like it so much. What happens? You suck it up, you try to quit, and then the cravings hit. And you still go back to it. And then you go through this cycle. And you feel guilty, and you feel like a loser, and each time that you give in again, you feel a little bit worse about yourself. What would happen... I mean, I'm old enough to remember one of the cigarette packages used to say, the Surgeon General warns that this could harm your health. Yeah? Now what it says is, the Surgeon General guarantees this will kill you. And what happens is people still blow past that because they, they really, they kind of don't believe it. They think they can kind of get by with it or they can quit in time that it won't have adverse effects. Or they con themselves in another way. Well, what would happen if they changed the formula of the tobacco industry and all of a sudden, remember, you lit up and went, your head went, boom. Not every now and then, not like one of those General Motors cars that it fails every now and then. What if every time your head blew up? What do you think would be the chances of people actually stopping smoking then? Pretty much near to 100%, I would guess. And the reason being is because all of a sudden they would see it very differently and what they would want would change. You you catch where I'm going? One of the best ways I can illustrate the difference between motivation by grace and motivation by legalism is to use old Greek mythology. Any of you guys read Greek mythology when you were in high school? Do you remember reading about the sirens? The the sirens were a group of apparently pretty good-looking gals. But what they did was they, they lived on an island because they couldn't get along with anybody. And they would sing this, this song that was so enchanting and seductive that sailors would lose their minds. None of this is true. It's just mythology. But yeah, they would, they would sing this. And so what would happen is the guys would like, oh, I've got to go get to them. And so they would steer the ship over towards the island. And as the ship got close to the island, it would break apart on the rocks. And I believe these sirens ate them. Yeah, yeah, they ate them. Okay, it's been a while since I've read it. 
Well, now, you remember Ulysses, Odysseus, he had two names. He's given all this credit for being a really clever guy. He has to sail past this island, so he comes up with a brilliant idea. His idea was, I'll put beeswax in all of the sailors' ears. They won't be able to hear the sirens and we'll be safe. But then he thought to himself, I kind of want to hear what everybody's hearing. And I don't want to die for it. So, tie me up to this post and don't let me go no matter what I say or what I do. And that's what they do. And he lost his ever-loving mind. If he could have broke a rope, if he could have talked the guy into anything, he'd have gone straight to that island. Well, when we finally got out of earshot, he kind of was all exhausted and he, was, he had made it past. He tied himself off where he couldn't do what he wanted to do. I think it's a picture of legalism. But there was another guy. His name was Orpheus. He wasn't the captain of the ship, but he was a musician. Remember, his ship had to go past there and the sirens started singing and the guys started getting all turned on and wanting to turn the ship. He pulled out his lyre and he played a more beautiful song. And as he played a more beautiful song, the men kept their course. And they sailed, steered clear of the danger. See, I think that's the way that grace is supposed to work. Oftentimes what happens as Christians is we try to get to the short way of getting over our sin. And we rely on ropes and rules and regulations and ritual and religion to try to change how we live. And it's powerless. Romans 7 says that the ends of the law was just death. Grace is about life. It's a more beautiful song. See, I think when we learn to confess, when we learn to agree with Jesus, we see Him for who He really is and He's beautiful. He is incredible. Just a glimpse of His majesty is life-changing, life-altering. And we don't want what was there before. When we see what righteousness has to offer, we don't want unrighteousness anymore. We taste that it's good. Remember, Jesus said, if you want to be in His kingdom, you've got to seek first His kingdom and what? His righteousness. What does confession do for me? Purifies me from all unrighteousness. I think we've got to bump up the priority we put on confession. I think we've got to pray and ask God to help us to see things the way that He sees it so that He'll change what we want and we will see things and that sin, bring it back to your mind for a second, that sin that so frustrates you and sometimes even makes you doubt your salvation, it'll be a thing of the past. You won't get there tomorrow necessarily or you might. I don't know how to explain this but sometimes God lets us struggle for a while. I was talking with a guy who had a problem with porn. A guy from this congregation. He doesn't struggle with it anymore. I said, what's the difference? And he said, I don't know. There was just one day when I, it, it wasn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I didn't do anything different the night before than what I had done every other night. It just changed for me. And I've talked with older Christians who've had the same experience with other sins. Danny walked away from a drug lifestyle and wasn't tempted to go back. I've known the man for 25 years. He wasn't faking it or just saying it. He really doesn't want to go back. And yet we've watched other people who've had to work for it and they didn't get there for quite some time. But they get there if they can confess. If they learn to see it the way that God does. All I can tell you about that, folks, is apparently there is something gained through the struggle when in faith we work for it and we allow God 
to change us. Peter tells us to grow in the knowledge, the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That doesn't happen just by sitting around. Why do you think we're always pushing you to get into the Word of God and to learn? Because as you grow, you change. And I think maybe somehow in there, God develops something in us that's worth more than just freedom from that particular sin. He develops a strength in us. All I know is God's God and He's good and He knows what He's doing. And none of us have to struggle forever with the sins that haunt us. We don't have to be burdened with feeling like we're just bad people and we don't have to think I'll never get past this. All we have to do is learn how to confess and see it His way and God will change what we want which will change what we act, how we act. Okay, the second why. Why I need to confess. I'm going to try and hurry up here is so I can promote healing. What does sin do to relationships? It destroys them. It harms them and it hurts them. What about your relationship with God? I went past this, this billboard out uh, on the Beltline, and it was there for uh, maybe a year or better. I think it's still a billboard campaign. It just struck me the first time I saw it. It was big, bold letters. God's not mad at you. And I thought, I don't know about me, but he might be mad at you for saying that. Some people think that if God forgives us, and he's not going to punish us and send us to hell for sin anymore, then he's never upset with us again. He's not mad. I would suggest that they're not considering the whole picture of relationship. While we stand completely free from our sin and loved and, and adopted into his family and citizens of his kingdom... You think we can tick God off? We can anger Him. We can frustrate Him. We can disappoint Him. How many of you parents have kids and you love them, but they make you so mad? Your kids make you mad? Do you ever think about taking away your family name and kicking them to the curb because of their failures? Most of us don't. If we do, we, we quickly dismiss it. We don't do that. But you know, if you love somebody and they sin against you, it hurts the relationship. Okay. Whenever you sin, bring back to mind that, that sin that you struggle with again. Got it? Close your eyes. Get it? Okay. The last time that you gave into it, how quick were you to want to pray? Did you find it difficult to talk to God? Most of us, right after we've sinned, God's the last person we want to talk to. For any number of reasons. But the biggest one is, is we feel the distance. We feel the separation. And He didn't move. It's like the old farmer and his wife, they were driving along in the pickup truck and she's just gabbing at him. And she's talking about how bad their marriage is and blaming him. And he says, she says, and another thing, we don't sit close together when we're driving in the truck anymore. He looked at her and says, who moved? He was still in the same spot. God's still in the same spot when we sin. But you see, we walk a different path. We pull away from Him and it damages our relationships. So look at what James says about sin and confession in James 5, 16. James there says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
He doesn't use the word forgiven here. He uses the word healed. In Greek, that means healed. (laughs) What's the message that he's telling us? Remember, our definition has changed on confession. Therefore, agree with God. Be on the same page with Him. Say the same things about your sin that He says about your sin to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. I can think of two ways that we could probably understand what James is saying here, and I think they're both right, although I don't know which specifically James probably has in mind. The first one is, is whenever we sin against God, we need help learning how to confess. And it's our brothers and sisters in Christ who help us learn to see our sin the way that God sees it. They show us what they learn about that sin in Scripture, what they've learned in their own lives, what they've seen in the lives of others, and they help us learn to confess. And then they assist us in prayer and help us to repair the damage that we do to our relationship with God. See, God has got feelings too. You, you remember back in the 70s, not you young guys, first four rows, forget this, but the rest of you, you remember back in the 70s there was a movie and they had a saying, uh, love is never having to say you're sorry. That's the dumbest thing ever. If you love someone and you offend them, what else would you do but say you're sorry? When you start to learn to confess and you see your sin the way that God does, what else would you do but tell Him you're sorry? Parents, if your child came to you and said, Dad, Mom, I did what you told me not to do. I sinned against you. And you know, I hate it. I'm beginning to see why you don't want me to do this, but I don't completely understand it yet. But I'm really committed to understanding and seeing this the way you do because I don't want to struggle with this anymore. Would that possibly change how you feel about your teenage child? It'd be great, wouldn't it? And I think that it helps us in our relationship with God. But there's a second way that he could intend this. See, sometimes we sin against each other. Anybody in this church ever offended you? Anybody in this church ever sinned against you? Happens all the time. Right? So what happens... If the person that's offended you and sinned against you came to you and said, listen, I did this thing, and God clearly says that it's a sin. Look, he says it right here. And I did that, and I did that to you. And I don't want to do that to you anymore. I don't want to sin against God, and I don't want to sin against you. Would you pray for me and help me not to treat you that way anymore? What happens to your argument? How would you feel about that person? Kind of takes the starch out of the fight, doesn't it? sounds a little bit like what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he said, get the log out of your own eye. See, I think that confession heals our relationships, promotes healing, and brings us back together. There's a third why that I want to share with you. Why to confess. I confess so that I can prove Jesus and I belong together. Why do I confess? I confess so I can prove that Jesus and I belong together. A few years ago, we were at a marriage retreat, and uh, had to, we were at, a, at a, a hotel over in St. Louis. I had to go to the bathroom. Nothing particularly important was going on. I didn't think so. I jumped up to go to the restroom, and at the same time, Jackie Schilling. You remember this, Jackie? <laughs> she had to go to the restroom. So we're just walking through the halls trying to find the restroom. And so when we come around the corner and there's the restrooms, there's this huge long line for the restrooms. So we're standing in line, chit-chatting. 
About halfway through the line, we realized the line wasn't for the restrooms. The line was for a, fan, a, a, a high school reunion where they were taking pictures of the returning student, students that had graduated. And so someone walks up to us and says, like they knew us, oh, so you're here for your pictures. I can see that you're married. They saw my wedding ring. They saw her wedding ring. We were standing together in the wrong line. And I thought, I can't resist. I said, yes. <laughs> I did. I did go to school here. I'm so good. And Jackie looks at me like, <gasps> and then she smiled <laughs> from ear to ear. And so we got all the way up and, and I, I didn't know how far I was going to take this. But we got all the way up to posing and I said, I can't do it. <laughs> but I thought, I thought this would be so funny for them. They, they would look at these pictures and trying to figure out who we were. I th- and I thought that would be so fun to do, but I, I just, my hypocrisy can only go so far, so I, I, I let off. But wedding rings sort of do the same thing that confession does. It says, I belong to somebody. Look at what Jesus says about confession in Matthew, chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. So what's Jesus telling us here? Well, why wouldn't we confess Jesus in public? Would it be because maybe we're afraid of how people will respond to us? Jesus says there's something worse to fear. How many of you guys watch professional sports? And they're interviewing some athlete right after he's done some incredible thing. And the first thing after, you know, they ask him a question about the game. I'm a boxing fan. I used to box a little. I hate watching them interview fighters at the end of the fight. Because it's like you know what's coming. They shove a microphone in this guy's mouth. And the first thing out of his mouth is to deflect the question he was asked and say, First of all, I want to give all praise and honor to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then the next thing out of his mouth is a string of obscenities. And things that have no bearing on the Christian life at all. Things that Jesus would never condone or want to be a part of. Did that man confess Jesus? He admitted that Jesus is Lord, but he didn't confess him. He didn't agree. That is not the picture of what Jesus is telling us to do here. Frankly, look at, look at uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 46. Jesus said there, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? See, we live in a place where people will tell you all you have to do is say that Jesus is Lord. And that makes you a Christian. That's not the truth. Jesus would not agree with that statement. Because here in Luke, he's talking to people who are doing that very thing. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you won't do what I say? Part of confessing Jesus is doing what he says. See, when we learn to agree with Jesus, when we confess Him, like we're learning about here, the way that He says, when we agree about who He is, we live our lives differently because now we are no longer living for what we get and our concerns. We're living with one goal in mind, that's to please our King. That looks different. You think different when you confess Jesus. And you act different. And you know what? People notice. And they don't always like it. Peter warns about it in 1 Peter 4.4. 4. Look what he says there. He says, They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living 
and they heap abuse on you. Okay, look at your toes for a second. How many of you fit in real nicely with the world around that denies that Jesus is Lord? Chances are you're not confessing him. It's a problem to hang out in the dens of the wicked and fit in. See, confession is not what we do with our mouths, guys. It's what we do with our lives. And occasionally, we do it with our mouths. Peter talks about that too in the chapter just prior to this. He says in 1 Peter 3, 13-15, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Jesus said that in the Beatitudes. He says, Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Revere Christ as Lord. Does that sound like confession to you? It's in your heart. Agreeing with Him that He's Lord. Lord means owner. If you're agreeing that Jesus owns you, and you're not obeying Him, then you are rebelling against Him. You're taking possession of something that you don't own. Paul told the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus is Lord means that He owns you. And when we confess that and we get that straight, we act different and this is what happens. Verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Our failure to evangelize the world, I think, is connected to our failure to truly confess Jesus and to truly live the way that He says for us to live, to actually be sold out and let Him be Lord because we don't attract attention. We look too much like the world around us. But when we get it straight, when we agree with Jesus, our actions change because our thoughts change, our desires change, and it draws attention and it creates opportunity. People ask, why do you have this hope? Why are you so different? Why do you live that way? Why do things seem to go right for you? The next natural question is, are you prepared to tell people why you have this hope? Do you even think about it? Or are you more concerned with trying to fit in and blend in could you explain to somebody why you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Could you explain to somebody why I've given everything up to pursue first His kingdom and His righteousness? That's what we're doing in our discipleship groups here, folks. There's always this temptation in our discipleship groups when we're looking at things like the beginning studies. Those are intended to teach you how to explain to people the hope that you have. I'm afraid that some of you will miss the opportunity and simply look at it as a Bible class. Where instead of thinking about how you can explain the hope that you have to somebody else, so that maybe they would surrender their lives to Christ and become a part of the kingdom, you're just thinking, well, I just want to get the right answer to the right question. And so you learn it for a time and then you forget it and it doesn't change the way that you act. It doesn't change the way that you think. And so when the opportunity comes along, you're not prepared. And I hope that you'll not miss those opportunities. I have gone as long as I intended to go today and just a little bit longer, and I'm going to wrap this up. I hope that, that you'll really stop and think about confession and see it a little differently, that it's not just admitting that you've done something wrong, and to maybe look for evidences of legalism in your life and ask God to teach you more about His grace so that He'll change what you want and so that He'll purify you from all unrighteousness. 
We need to live righteous lives so that the world around us knows that there's a real God, not just religion. Let's pray.